Book Four, Chapter Two, Amelia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Amelia by Henry Fielding, Book Four, Chapter Two, the latter part of which we expect will please our reader better than the former. A whole week did our lady and gentleman live in this criminal conversation in which the happiness of the former was much more perfect than that of the latter. For though the charms of Miss Matthews, and her excessive endearments, sometimes lulled every thought in the sweet lethargy of pleasure, yet in the intervals of his fits his virtue alarmed and roused him, and brought the image of poor injured Amelia to haunt and torment him. In fact, if we regard this world only, it is the interest of every man to be either perfectly good or completely bad. He had better destroy his conscience than gently wound it. The many bitter reflections, which every bad action costs a mind in which there are any remains of goodness, are not to be compensated by the highest pleasures which such an action can produce. So it happened to Mr. Booth. Repentance never failed to follow his transgressions, and yet so perverse is our judgment and so slippery is the descent of vice when once we are entered into it, the same crime which he now repented of became a reason for doing that which was to cause his future repentance. And he continued to sin on because he had begun. His repentance, however, returned still heavier and heavier, till at last it flung him into a melancholy which Miss Matthews plainly perceived, and at which she could not avoid expressing some resentment in obscure hints and ironical compliments on Amelia's superiority to her whole sex, who could not cloy a gay young fellow by many years' possession. She would then repeat the compliments which others had made to her own beauty, and could not forbear once crying out, "'Upon my soul, my dear Willie, I believe the chief disadvantage on my side is my superior fondness.' for love in the minds of men hath one quality at least of a fever which is to prefer coldness in the object confess dear will is there not something vastly refreshing in the cool air of a prude booth fetched a deep sigh and begged her never more to mention amelia's name oh will cries she did that request proceed from the motive i could wish I should be the happiest of womankind. You would not, sure, madam, said Booth, desire a sacrifice which I must be a villain to make to any. Desire, answered she, are there any bounds to the desires of love? Have not I been sacrificed? Hath not my first love been torn from my bleeding heart? I claim a prior right. As for sacrifices, I can make them too and would sacrifice the whole world at the least call of my love. Here she delivered a letter to Booth, which she had received within an hour, the contents of which are these. Dearest Madam, those only who truly know what love is, can have any conception of the horrors I felt at hearing of your confinement at my arrival in town, which was this morning. I immediately sent my lawyer to inquire into the particulars, who brought me the agreeable news that the man, whose heart's blood ought not to be valued at the rate of a single hair of yours, is entirely out of all danger, 
and that you might be admitted to bail. I presently ordered him to go with two of my tradesmen, who are to be bound in any sum for your appearance, if he should be mean enough to prosecute you. Though you may expect my attorney with you soon, I would not delay sending this, as I hope the news will be agreeable to you. My chariot will attend at the same time to carry you wherever you please. You may not easily guess what a violence I have done to myself in not waiting on you in person, but I, who know your delicacy, feared it might offend, and that you might think me ungenerous enough to hope from your distresses that happiness which I am resolved to owe to your free gift alone. When your good nature shall induce you to bestow on me what no man living can merit, I beg you will pardon all the contents of this hasty letter, and do me the honour of believing me, dearest madam, your most passionate admirer, and most obedient humble servant, Damon. Booth thought that he had somewhere before seen the same hand, but in his present hurry of spirits could not recollect whose it was, nor did the lady give him any time for reflection, for he had scarce read the letter when she had produced a little bit of paper, and cried out, "'Here, sir, here are the contents which he fears will offend me.' She then put a bank-bill of a hundred pounds into Booth's hands, and asked him with a smile if he did not think she had reason to be offended with so much insolence. Before Booth could return any answer, the governor arrived, and introduced Mr. Rogers the attorney, who acquainted the lady that he had brought her discharge from her confinement, and that a chariot waited at the door to attend her wherever she pleased. She received the discharge from Mr. Rogers, and said she was very much obliged to the gentleman who employed him, but that she would not make use of the chariot, as she had no notion of leaving that wretched place in a triumphant manner in which resolution, when the attorney found her obstinate, he withdrew, as did the governor, with many bows and as many ladyships. They were no sooner gone than Booth asked the lady why she would refuse the chariot of a gentleman who had behaved with such excessive respect. She looked earnestly upon him and cried, "'How unkind is that question! Do you imagine I would go and leave you in such a situation?' Thou knowest but little of Callista. Why, do you think I would accept this hundred pounds from a man I dislike, unless it was to be serviceable to the man I love? I insist on your taking it as your own, and using whatever you want of it. Booth protested in the solemnest manner that he would not touch a shilling of it, saying he had already received too many obligations at her hands, and more than ever he should be able, he feared, to repay. "'How unkind,' answered she, "'is every word you say. "'Why will you mention obligations? "'Love never confers any. "'It doth everything for its own sake. "'I am not therefore obliged to the man "'whose passion makes him generous, "'for I feel how inconsiderable "'the whole world would appear to me "'if I could throw it after my heart.' "'Much more of this kind passed,' she still pressing the bank-note upon him, and he as absolutely refusing, till Booth left the lady to dress herself, and went to walk in the area of the prison. Miss Matthews now applied to the governor, to know by what means she might procure the captain his liberty. The governor answered, as he cannot get bail, 
it will be a difficult matter. And money, to be sure, there must be, for people no doubt expect to touch on these occasions. When prisoners have not wherewithal, as the law requires, to entitle themselves to justice, why they must be beholden to other people to give them their liberty. And people will not, to be sure, suffer others to be beholden to them for nothing. Whereof there is good reason, for how should we all live if it was not for these things? Well, well, said she, and how much will it cost? How much, answered he, how much? Why, let me see. Here he hesitated some, and then answered, That for five guineas he would undertake to procure the captain his discharge, that being the sum which he computed to remain in the lady's pocket, for as to the gentleman's he had long been acquainted with the emptiness of it. Miss Matthews, to whom money was as dirt, indeed she may be thought not to have known the value of it, delivered him the bank-bill, and bid him get it changed, for if the whole, she says, will procure him his liberty, he shall have it this evening. "'The whole, madam,' answered the governor, as soon as he had recovered his breath, for it almost forsook him at the sight of the black word, hundred. "'No, no, there might be people indeed, but I am not one of those. A hundred? No, nor nothing like it. As for myself, as I said, I will be content with five guineas, and I am sure that's little enough. What other people will get I expect I cannot exactly say. To be sure his worship's clerk will expect a touch pretty handsomely. As for his worship himself, he never touches anything, that is, not to speak of. But then the constable will expect something, and the watchman must have something, and the lawyers on both sides. They must have their fees for finishing. Well, said she, I leave all to you. If it cost me twenty pounds, I will have him discharged this afternoon. But you must give his discharge into my hands, without letting the captain know anything of the matter. The governor promised to obey her commands in every particular. Nay, he was so very industrious, that though dinner was just then coming to the table, at her earnest request he set out immediately on the purpose, and went, as he said, in pursuit of the lawyer. All the other company assembled at the table as usual, where poor Booth was the only person out of spirits. This was imputed by all present to a wrong cause. Nay, Miss Matthews herself either could not or would not suspect that there was anything deeper than the despair of being speedily discharged that lay heavily on his mind. However, the mirth of the rest, and a pretty liberal quantity of punch, which he swallowed after dinner, for Miss Matthews had ordered a very large bowl at her own expense to entertain the good company at her farewell, so far exhilarated his spirits that when the young lady and he retired to their tea, he had all the marks of gaiety in his countenance, and his eyes sparkled with good humour. The gentleman and lady had spent about two hours in tea and conversation when the governor returned, and privately delivered to the lady the discharge for her friend, and the sum of eighty-two pounds five shillings, the rest having been, he said, dispersed in the business, of which he was ready at any time to render an exact account. Miss Matthews being again alone with Mr. Booth, she put the discharge into his hands, desiring him to ask her no questions, and adding, 
I think, sir, we have neither of us now anything more to do at this place. She then summoned the governor, and ordered a bill of that day's expense, for long scores were not usual there, and at the same time ordered a hackney coach, without having yet determined whither she would go, but fully determined she was, wherever she went, to take Mr. Booth with her. The governor was now approaching with a long roll of paper, when a faint voice was heard to cry out hastily, "'Where is he?' And presently a female spectre, all pale and breathless, rushed into the room and fell into Mr. Booth's arms, where she immediately fainted away. Booth made a shift to support his lovely burden, though he was himself in a condition very little different from hers. Miss Matthews, likewise, who presently recollected the face of Amelia, was struck motionless with surprise. Nay, the governor himself, though not easily moved at sights of horror, stood aghast, and neither offered to speak nor stir. Happily for Amelia, the governess of the mansions had out of curiosity followed her into the room, and was the only useful person present on this occasion. She immediately called for water, and ran to the lady's assistance, fell to loosening her stays, and performed all the offices proper at such a season, which had so good an effect that Amelia soon recovered the disorder which the violent agitation of her spirits had caused, and found herself alive and awake in her husband's arms. Some tender caresses and a soft whisper or two passed privately between Booth and his lady, nor was it without great difficulty that poor Amelia put some restraint on her fondness in a place so improper for a tender interview. She now cast her eyes around the room, and fixing them on Miss Matthews, who stood like a statue, she soon recollected her, and addressing her by her name, said, "'Sure, madam, I cannot be mistaken in those features, though meeting you here might almost make me suspect my memory.' Miss Matthew's face was now all covered with scarlet. The reader may easily believe she was on no account pleased with Amelia's presence. Indeed, she expected from her some of those insults, of which virtuous women are generally so liberal to a frail sister. But she was mistaken. Amelia was not one, who thought the nation ne'er would thrive, till all the whores were burnt alive." Her virtue could support itself with its own intrinsic worth, without borrowing any assistance from the vices of other women, and she considered their natural infirmities as the objects of pity, not of contempt or abhorrence. When Amelia therefore perceived the visible confusion in Miss Matthews, she presently called to remembrance some stories which she had imperfectly heard, for as she was not naturally attentive to scandal— she had kept very little company since her return to England. She was far from being a mistress of the lady's whole history. However, she had heard enough to impute her confusion to the right cause. She advanced to her and told her she was extremely sorry to meet her in such a place, but hoped that no very great misfortune was the occasion of it. Miss Matthews began, by degrees, to recover her spirits. She answered with a reserved air, I am much obliged to you, madam, for your concern. We are all liable to misfortunes in this world. Indeed, I know not why I should be ashamed of being in any place where I am in such good company. Here Booth interposed. He had before acquainted Amelia in a whisper 
that his confinement was at an end. "'The unfortunate accident, my dear,' said he, "'which brought this young lady to this melancholy place is entirely determined, "'and she is now as absolutely at her liberty as myself.' "'Amelia, imputing the extreme coldness and reserve of the lady "'to the cause already mentioned, advanced still more and more, "'in proportion as she drew back.' till the governor, who had withdrawn some time, returned, and acquainted Miss Matthews that her coach was at the door, upon which the company soon separated. Amelia and Booth went together in Amelia's coach, and poor Miss Matthews was obliged to retire alone, after having satisfied the demands of the governor, which in one day only had amounted to a pretty considerable sum, for he, with great dexterity, proportioned the bills to the abilities of his guests. It may seem, perhaps, wonderful to some readers that Miss Matthews should have maintained that cold reserve towards Amelia, so as barely to keep within the rules of civility, instead of embracing an opportunity which seemed to offer of gaining some degree of intimacy with a wife whose husband she was so fond of but besides that her spirits were entirely disconcerted by so sudden and unexpected a disappointment, and besides the extreme horrors which she conceived at the presence of her rival, there is, I believe, something so outrageously suspicious in the nature of all vice, especially when joined with any great degree of pride, that the eyes of those whom we imagine privy to our failings are intolerable to us, and we are apt to aggravate their opinions to our disadvantage far beyond the reality. End of Book Four, Chapter Two